Again, good morning. Great to be with you, especially if it's your first time, first time in a long time. We're so glad you're here. Uh, we were uh, just kicking off, uh, as of last week, a new sermon series entitled By the Book. And if you weren't with us last week or didn't hear the introduction, let me, let me tell you what the series is all about. If you want to know what a particular culture worships, what they exalt and bow down to, well, just look at their publications. You see, the books on the shelves and the magazines on the racks, they will tell you a lot about what people think is most important and most valuable. And when you do that here in the States, at any bookstore, shoot, even at a convenience store, you will see that three things continually rise to the top of the list. Money, sex, and power. What I call stuff, success, and sex. Say that five times fast, you're bound to get yourself in trouble. But from Maxim to Playboy, from Money Magazine to Entrepreneur, from Car and Driver to Wired, I mean, it's obvious that we love, we are fascinated with these three things. What's amazing, though, about each of these three things is that they were good gifts that were originally given to us by a very good God. But you see, the gifts can easily become more important than the one who gave them to us. And the gifts given to us by God can actually become little gods in our lives. And the problem with little gods, there's a lot, we'll talk about that a little bit next week, but they try to push the real God off the throne of your life, the throne of your heart. And although there are a lot of books out there on money, sex, and power, we have the stage filled with them. And again, come feel free to peruse those and take some home with you afterward. But you can look to all of these books for information on money, sex, and power. But there's really only one book you got to look to, and it's this book. Because when it comes to learning about what is right and what is true and what is real and what is best, there's some good information there, but the best information is right here. Because you see, the scripture makes it clear. God holds all things together. And by all things, the Bible means things including money, sex, and power. The Bible also says that God imparts unto us wisdom and knowledge into all things. And again, by all things, it definitely includes money, sex, and power. And so our hope is that we will do this by the book, that we'll do money by the book, that we'll do sex by the book, that we'll do power by the book, and it's this book that we have in mind. And I'm excited and a little nervous this morning to dive deep into the scripture to see what God has to say about sex. So in the words of salt and pepper, let's talk about sex, baby. But since I'm the only one doing the talking, and since there might be a little self-disclosure involved, it's super important that I first show you this video. I'm Becca Fitzpatrick, and I approve this message, mostly. I got her permission, all right? I got her permission. So let's pray about this. God, we look to you for life. We look to you for the truth. We look to you for freedom and wisdom and knowledge into things that matter and things that are important and things that inundate our lives and our world. So speak to us now. As Kim said, we ask that we will hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I've heard that there are three topics that are sure to get a crowd to church. Sex, the end times, and will there be sex in the end times? It seems as if everyone wants to talk about or learn more about sex. But in addition to all having an interest in this particular topic, the truth is we all have a history with this particular topic. When it comes to talking about sex, things get a little complicated because we're all coming from a different place a different starting point, if you will. Some people in this room are virgins. 
Others in this room have been extremely promiscuous. Some people in this room were abused or taken advantage of sexually by someone else. Others know nothing of that. There are those in this room who struggle with same-sex attraction. Others who are addicted to masturbation or to porn. There are those in this room who are experiencing great intimacy in their marriage, both emotionally and physically. And there are others in this room who are in what we call a low-sex, no-sex marriage where intimacy is a thing of the past. So you see the difficulty in dealing directly with this particular topic? See, we're not talking about this in some hypothetical way, some idealistic way, in some vacuum. This is a very real issue. This is a very raw issue. This is a pretty messy issue for most of us. And it would take months to specifically address or dissect every single situation that I just listed off to you. So instead, what I want to try to do this morning is paint for you in very broad brushstrokes what sex is all about and why God gave it to us in the first place. See, from the multi-trillion dollar porn industry to Carl Jr.'s commercials, from the lyrics of today's top songs to a hookup culture that counts sexual partners as if they're Facebook friends, our world talks a lot about sex. But the truth is, the church should too. I mean, God makes a big deal out of sex. Although the word sex is only mentioned a handful of times in the New Testament in the NIV, God, through a variety of terms, phrases, stories, analogies, whatever it might be, he makes a big deal of this topic. He talks about it repeatedly and with great passion. And we don't do our society, we don't do our marriages, we don't do our teens any service by talking around or talking awkwardly about this topic. We need to talk about it in truth with love or with love in truth. You with me? we got to talk about it. And we should talk about it because God talks about it all the time. And for good reason, for very good reason. The best place to start when it comes to understanding God's thoughts on sex is Isaiah 28. Look at this with me. Listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. When a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? Does he keep on breaking up and working the soil? When he's leveled the surface, does he not sow caraway and scatter cumin? Does he not plant wheat in its place, barley in its plot, and spelt in its field? His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. Caraway is not threshed with a sledge, nor is the wheel of a cart rolled over cumin. Caraway is beaten out with a rod, cumin with a stick. Grain must be ground to make bread, so one does not go on threshing it forever. The wheels of a threshing cart may be rolled over it, but one does not use horses to grind grain. All this comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. And everybody said, Amen. Or not. Or not. What are you talking about, Thomas? The church, doesn't that passage clear up every question and concern you have about sex? We just leave right now, you'd go home completely satisfied, right? Not exactly. Not exactly. All right, it looks like a joke, but it's not. See, the prophet Isaiah says there is a right and a wrong way to do things. And in this case, he's talking about how you harvest certain crops. You don't roll over cumin with the wheels of a cart, and you don't use horses to grind wheat, because if you do, you'll ruin them. You're still confused. Okay, here we go. You're probably thinking, we were going to talk about sex, Thomas. That's kind of why I came today. Why are we talking about stones and horses and barley? Am I missing some, some deep spiritual analogy or connection here? I mean, you did say grind, but I'm not sure I get it, right? All right, let me explain in more detail. God not only made barley, God not only made grain, 
God not only made human, but he also made a very specific process in which you harvest and make the most out of those things. You following now? And what's true with barley is true for your body. He not only made your body, he not only made sex, but he made a very particular process by which you make the most out of that. He's the God of your body, he's the God of sex, and the God of how and when and with whom you're supposed to have sex. Isaiah said, God instructs him and teaches him the right way. And church, I'm here today to say, there's a right way to do this. And there's a lot of wrong ways to do this. And if we get it wrong, we will destroy it. And a lot of us can speak from personal experience on that. So this morning, I want to share with you why God gave us sex. I want to address the right way when it comes to unpacking and enjoying this incredible gift. As I've been studying this over the last couple of months, it seems like it all boils down to a few key words. Let me share those with you now. The first word is purpose. God gave us sex because it serves several amazing purposes. And the most important is connectivity between two people. Look at Genesis 2 with me. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. So I'll make a helper suitable for him. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up that place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of me. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and yet they felt no shame. See, the Bible makes it clear that God wanted and Adam needed a partner. But when looking for this partner for Adam, when looking for this, this person that he could share life with and connect to, God looked out over the animal kingdom and said, none of the animals are going to be sufficient. Now, we read that and we say, of course, because that's gross and illegal in all 50 states. But it's deeper than that. You see, Adam is fundamentally different than the animals. The animals all exist and only exist on a purely physical level. It's kill and eat, see and reproduce, challenge and fight. But Adam doesn't operate that way. Adam, unlike all of the animals, has been made in the image of God. He bears the likeness of God himself, which means Adam is emotional, intellectual, spiritual, and physical. And thus the intimacy he desires, the connection he needs, the partnership he longs for, the bond that God created him for, it needs to happen on all of those levels as well, not just on the physical level. If it was just physical, an animal would have been just fine. And so God makes a beautiful and unique partner for him, albeit sometimes a complicated and overly emotional partner for him, the woman. Men, thank, come on, I'm, I'm putting him in there. Come on, Mingo, stay with me here. And upon seeing the woman, Adam says something profound. Dang! Or actually, he doesn't say that, but I imagine he probably thought that. He says a few very insightful things, but it's what God says in that moment that I want to focus on. God called this connection between these two unique God-like partners, he called it one flesh. Now, we hear that language and we think, oh, they're going to have sex together. It's the connecting of flesh. One flesh, connecting bodies, got it. No, you don't. In Hebrew, the term flesh referred to the whole person, not just the physical body. 
To become one flesh meant you became one person. It meant you were connected to somebody else on every level possible. And this makes sense. I mean, think about how the man and woman were first created. God separated and literally took woman out of man. He made two from one. Well, in sex, he miraculously and magically makes two one again. And he connects them at every level. And this oneness is a oneness of heart, mind, spirit, and body. In Hebrew, the term sex means to know. And so when God invites you to have sex with someone, he invites you to know that person. But not just to know their body parts, not to know them physically, to know their entire person. To know them intimately and intricately and at every level. When we make sex simply about body parts, we make sex something that, that is just about connecting of body parts. We're actually taking the deep, meaningful connection that it is designed to create, and we're causing it to, to have disconnect between people. You, you with me? Sex is designed to connect you at so many different levels with somebody, but when we don't want that connection, we're wrecking it, and we're actually causing great disconnection. You can't argue with this because pornography, prostitution, masturbation, one-night stands, adultery, all those involve sex, don't they? They involve something that is designed to connect you, but what's happening? There's great disconnect. Why? Because purely physical. Sex is not purely physical. It connects you on so many other levels. And when you don't recognize that, when you don't see that, when you don't know that's the right way to do it, the God way to do it, then you're going to mess it up. Sex that's purely physical Sex that's trivial, just some sort of act we perform. It actually takes sex, which is kind of this godlike experience, this godly gift. It takes it from this high level, this pedestal, and it drops it down and throws it in the gutter. When you make sex all about the sex, all about the physical, you're actually acting more like an animal than you are like God. You with me? An animal would have been just fine if it was all about the sex. It's not all about the sex. It's about being like God. And so you have to exalt the act from being animalistic, which a lot of our world is stuck in, to being more of an act of worship. We're not like the animals, church. We're like God. To show you that sex is all about creating this deep, meaningful relationship, God throws this line in there that kind of seems out of place if you think about it. They'll become one flesh. They're going to have sex together. They're going to be connected emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, physically. It's going to be amazing. And by the way, this is why you leave your mom and dad and get married. I'm like, what? Why'd you throw that in there all of a sudden? God's out trying to motivate like all 30-something deadbeat couch potatoes who are living in their parents' basement to like get out. Okay, so families, there's your proof text right there, Genesis. God says, leave. <laughs> He's doing something more than that, though. He's saying that that intimate, holistic, life-giving relationship that you once had with your parents that involved body, soul, mind, spirit, well, that connection now, you're going to disconnect from them and you're going to reconnect with somebody else. And it's going to be holistic and life-giving and emotional, physical, relational, spiritual, all of the above. You with me? You were connected here and now through sex, you're going to be connected over here. You were close to your parents, but now you're going to be even closer to your spouse. And how you're going to do that is through sex. To say it another way, sex is life-giving. You giving your life to somebody else and vice versa, and God connecting two lives together. People talk about having sex but not getting too emotionally involved. It cannot happen. 
When you have sex, you connect with somebody on every level. You might not want it. You might not think it's happening. You might not like it, but it's happening. Sex connects. That's how God made it. There's another purpose, though, to it. God has a second great purpose in giving us sex. Genesis 1.28 speaks to this one. After giving Adam and Eve the great gift of sex, God said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, go make some babies. Lots of babies. The second great purpose in sex is procreation. So purpose number one is to give life, to connect life. Purpose number two is to create life. Now this one might be the most obvious, but I don't want you to skip over this one. I don't want you to miss the sacredness of this. See, the Bible makes it clear that God and God alone is the author of life. It's what makes him God. He's the only one that can create something out of nothing and life out of dust. So there's something deeply spiritual about sex, something deeply sacred and special about sex because it's in sex where God acts like God and does what only God can do, bringing about new life. Sex is the power. It's the wonder of the Genesis account happening in your life again and again and again. It's the magic and the miracle of life being created. So there's a reason that we celebrate and honor and work towards and pray for and protect newborns and unborns and infants and babies. They are the manifestation of God's ability to bring life. They are the manifestation and the fulfillment of the command to have babies. We want to honor those who do. So the first word I want you to associate with sex is purpose. God's got great purposes behind sex. But in addition to giving us sex because it serves several amazing purposes, God also gave it to us because it's incredibly pleasurable. That's the other word I want you to focus on. See, here's the crazy thing about sex. God could have made it very mechanical, right? Do this, then do this, then out pops that. Right, like an, like an Ikea uh, piece of paper, right? Instruction manual. Okay, uh, A, B, into C. Uh, oh, oh, sweet, table, right? But that's not how it is. He could have made it as if it were like cutting your fingernails, right? Okay, done. Right, he could have made it that way. That's his right. He could have made it any way he wanted, but he didn't make that way. He made it the opposite. I love how one pastor said it. What a great God we serve in that he made procreation a recreation. And this is incredibly important and something that a lot of people have misunderstood and misconstrued over the years. God gave us sex because it's pleasurable. Plain and simple. Some conservative churches, some fundamentalist churches, maybe one that you grew up in, Always say that sex is bad and wrong and dirty. And if you grew up in that setting, you know how detrimental that can be. Because you were told constantly, bad, evil, wrong. But then suddenly on your wedding night, you're supposed to hit some magical switch where it becomes good. Like, ooh, yuck, gross. I do. Yay, more, please. Those words, I do, seriously can change a lifetime of hearing that sex is bad? No, they can't. They can't. Sex is good. It's been given for our enjoyment. To see the truth behind this, just look at the female body. There are parts in the female body, I'm not going to go into great detail here for multiple reasons, but there are parts in her body that serve no other function except to bring her pleasure during sex. 
These parts make it so that a woman can have an orgasm during sex, which if you want to talk turkey, you don't have to have an orgasm to make babies. Right? You don't have to have a climax to, to get pregnant, but God made it so that you do. God made it so that it's possible. Why? Because babies isn't the only thing he has in mind. Pleasure is. He gave it to us because it's so pleasurable. In addition to looking at the female body, just look at the Song of Solomon. I mean, if God didn't want us to enjoy this gift and to experience great pleasure in this gift, then why did he put an entire book in this book about that? Your breasts are like clusters of fruit. I want to climb that tree and take hold of them. I just quoted the Bible. I'm serious. Song of Solomon, chapter 3. The man in this story, he's talking about his lover. And he talks about her in these exotic, erotic ways. He says, your eyes, your smell, your legs. He even talks about her belly and her nose. He calls her belly a heap of wheat and her nose the Tower of Lebanon. I don't recommend using those same (laughs) phrases today. There's some cultural differences that might get you in trouble. But you see, sex is obviously designed to be something we look forward to, something we long for, something we enjoy. The man and the woman in the Song of Solomon don't say, I want to climb your trees so you can have a baby. I want to grab a hold of your fruit because I want you to get pregnant. He says, I want to be with you sexually it's going to be wonderful. And God says, yes, it will be. That's how I made it. That brings us to our third word, though, plan. I've hinted at this all morning, but God has a specific plan when it comes to sex. He has a specific setting and relationship where he wants and has allowed this to take place. The woman in the Song of Solomon, as her, as her man is just talking so sensually about her body, she's like, ooh, yeah, me too, but but do not arouse love until the proper moment, she says. On four different occasions, do not awaken love until the proper moment. Well, what is that moment? What is proper? The Bible makes it clear, Ephesians 5, 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. Sound familiar? 1 Corinthians 7, 2. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his wife and each woman with her own husband. Hebrews 13.4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers will be judged. See, according to God, a man and a woman, they are allowed, if not encouraged, to experience the pleasure of sex in marriage. That's it. It's within the confines of marriage. That's the only place God wants this to take place. Look at that Hebrews passage with me. It's pretty interesting. Marriage is to be held in honor. Marriage is a godly thing, a good thing. The marriage bed is where God wants to be pure and holy. Fornication, which is the Bible's way of saying premarital sex, that's not good and not of God. And adultery, which is extramarital sex, that's not good or godly either. There's one place where it's good, like grain, like cumin, like all those seeds. There's one way to harvest it, and the way to do it is in marriage. That's it. Now, you might be thinking that this command to wait until you're married to have sex, that's limiting or old-fashioned or restrictive. It's not the case at all. See, people don't complain about how limiting seatbelts are. You don't don't hear about uh, that banisters on rooftop decks or guardrails on canyon roads are restrictive. People don't look at warning labels on sticks of dynamite and roll their eyes. All of those things, like God's guidelines, are designed to save you and to protect you from great danger. 
All of those things like God's commands are designed to bring you life and to save you life. And what's true with the guardrail, what's true with the with, with with warning label on a stick of dynamite is true for sex. It's true for God's command here. The fact that sex connects people on levels we can never fully fathom. The fact that sex taps into God's creative power to make life. The fact that sex is one of the most pleasurable things out there means that sex can be used and abused, means that sex can blow up in your face. And again, a lot of us can speak to personal experience on that. So God doesn't limit sex to marriage because he's trying to stifle your sexuality, because he's trying to limit you from having fun. He limits it to sex because if you do it outside of sex, you will hurt yourself or you will hurt somebody else. If you don't handle it the right way, you're doing it the wrong way, there's going to be some damage. But why would he say that? I mean, we just spent 20 minutes talking about how wonderful and, and the good purposes of sex. Don't you think God would want us to have it as often as possible? If sex communicates so many wonderful things about God, let's start talking. God created sex to be life-giving, life-creating, and life unifying. And when you engage in it without those intents, you are using it wrong. You with me? God created sex to be life-giving, life-creating, and life-unifying. And when you engage in it without those three purposes firmly in your mind, then you are doing it wrong. If you don't want to give life, create life, or be unified completely to somebody else's life, then do not have sex with them. That's reserved for your spouse. That's the opposite, though, of what people do today, isn't it? A lot of people think you just kind of play around with sex, like it's a toy, like it's a hobby. You just got to try it out. Well, you try out a new mattress. And you try out like a new dish at your favorite restaurant. And you try out like Netflix streaming or the new Microsoft Office. You try those things out. You don't try out sex. Trying it out wrecks it. Trying it out puts pressure on it. Trying it out puts conditions around it. It makes it performance-based and selfish and rather self-seeking. And we don't use that same logic with anything else of great importance. I mean, you don't try out your new house. Like, yeah, I'm going to sleep here for probably four nights and stay for five days. I'm going to walk around in my skivvy, see what the neighbors are like. I'm going to see what smells come in, what what the sun looks like in my bedroom window at 8 a.m. I'm going to try out the house. Is that okay? No, it's not okay. You don't get to try out the house. You don't try out parenthood. As if like 100 hours into it, it's like, listen, I didn't realize there was going to be no sleep. Or like those sights or smells could come from that thing. So listen, stork, just take them back to wherever you got them. You don't try that out. You don't try out like passing diamond rings around to people who are attractive. Or you don't, you don't try that out like, oh, here's a $5,000 ring. I'm just going to try this out. I'm going to give it to you because you kind of look, look nice. You don't try that out. You reserve something that's important you invest in something that's important. You commit to something that's important. You, you give yourself to something completely and for the long haul when it's important. When it's not, that's when you try it out. So by trying sex out, we're showing that it's not very important. But that's incorrect. That's so wrong. It's so important. Therefore, you can't just try it out. you got to invest in it. you got to commit to it. you got to be in it for the long haul. I remember the look on my coworker's face when I told her, that, that after four years of dating, Beck and I were still waiting to have sex until we got married. You would have thought that I told her, I just shot the president of the United States of America. Are you serious, she said? You're not going to at least try it out? No, I told her, we're not. 
But what if you guys, what if you guys aren't a good fit sexually? Well, I told her, we have a lifetime to make it fit. See, reserving sex for one person, for your spouse, speaks to how special it is, speaks to how sacred it is, speaks to the importance of it, it speaks to the commitment and friendship that's a part of it. Again, it's life-giving, life-creating, life-unifying. And when you do it those three ways and with those three goals in mind, you're doing it the right way. You don't do it to fill a void. You don't do it to feel a certain sensation. You don't do it to get another notch on your belt. You don't do it because you're lonely. Now, we don't have time to go into all the details of this. But in the Old Testament, a woman maintaining her virginity was a very big deal. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons why, but it boils down to this. Your sexuality is a powerful portrayal of your spirituality. Your sexuality is a powerful portrayal of your spirituality. If you are foolish and don't trust and honor God in this one area of your life, how does your spouse know you will follow and honor God in all the other areas of your life? The gift of your purity can only be given to one person and one person alone. You don't get it back. You don't get a redo. You can't undo it. And let me tell you from personal experience, there is no greater pain or shame than sitting with your soon-to-be spouse saying, I've given that gift away to other people when she's about ready to give that gift to you. You don't want to be in that room. You don't want to be in that conversation. That leads us to our final word of the morning. It's promise. Like I mentioned before, most of us come from pretty broken places sexually. Or we're trapped right now in some sexual sin. It's just tearing us apart. We've all been used and abused by this or have used and abused others through it. But the amazing thing about this church is that the God, the same great God who gave us this great gift is also the same God who promises to forgive us and heal us and restore us when we make a mess out of this gift, when we destroy it. So the promise throughout scripture is that God will forgive you for your sexual sin, no matter how tiny, no matter how terrible it might be. The promise is that those who've broken God's commands and his heart and his law, they can find forgiveness for their past and cleansing of all their regret and all their mistakes. Given my background, one of my favorite passages is Joel 2.25. And I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten away. I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten away. See, God is the only one who can help you overcome a devastating sexual past and the destruction of poor choices. Maybe you spent years or are currently being devoured by sexual sin, the locusts of Joel. Maybe you've had your life ripped away because of an addiction or an adulterous relationship or pornography or whatever it might be. Well, guess what? God can restore those years. God can give you back the years you lost. He can give you a bright future. See, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, especially sexual sin. Jesus knew this was going to happen to us. And that's why throughout this scripture, multiple women come to him and all of those women are broken sexually and every single one of those women receives complete forgiveness and restoration. That promise is true for you as well. If you've messed this up, and guess what? I, I know what that feels like. If you've destroyed this, if you've done this the wrong way, if you've rolled over it with a cart and destroyed it with the hoof of a horse, like Isaiah says, you know what? You can find forgiveness and restoration to that. And that's a great promise, is it not, church? That's a great promise for many of us. So God has good purposes in sex. He made it so pleasurable. He has a specific plan for how to engage in it, and he's promised to heal us when we mess it all up. There are a lot of words you can connect to sex, but the four words I want you to connect 
are purpose, pleasure, plan, and promise. When you connect those four words to sex, you're doing it the right way, God's way. You're living by the book. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word. Without it, God, where would we be? We'd be lost. We'd have no idea what is right or wrong, what's up and down, what the best way to live would be, but yet we have your word, and we pray that we would look to it for guidance and instruction. And in your word, Lord, as it pertains to sex, you tell us it serves some amazing purposes. In that Genesis account, you are connecting people together in ways that nothing else can connect them, God. You are creating life in a way that nothing else can create life. God, you've given us a great gift that's also very pleasurable. We thank you for that. We thank you for the joy and the wonder and the passion and the feeling and the thrill of sex. God, thank you that you don't make things mechanical or or dull or boring. God, you've given us a plan. This is an amazing gift. It's like a stick of dynamite. It's so powerful. It can do so many amazing things. But if we handle it wrong, we can hurt ourselves. So we thank you for putting parameters on this. Help us to see those not as limiting or restrictive, but as good guidelines that will lead us to life. And Father, many of us in this room need to hear about your promise this morning. The promise that you will restore unto us the years and the mistakes and the stupidity of our past. That you will help us to overcome the the things that we've done sexually. Maybe what we're currently doing. We just pray for freedom and forgiveness and for abundance and mercy and blessing God in those lives, those right now who are struggling with sin, who are looking at their past and hate what they've done or hate what they've done to other people, Father God. We just pray that you would help them to receive your mercy and your forgiveness this morning. Yeah, make it so. Make it so. We love you. You are such a good God. There is no God like you. Help us to put you first in all that we do this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.